This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations, scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research. In the span of about four years, Tom Jordan went from flunking out of college to teaching at an Ivy League university. But that dramatic turnaround isn't the only drama in Jordan's life. The Panama-born geophysicist specializes in the drama of the deep. His research has revealed the deep structures underlying continents, the inner workings of plate tectonics, and new insights into how earthquakes happen. Tom Jordan is the W.M. Keck Professor of Earth Sciences at the University of Southern California, where he also directs the Southern California Earthquake Center. He was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 1998. My name is Thomas H. Jordan. I was elected to the Academy in 19, selected in 1997, inducted in 1998. I think that's right. I'm a professor at the University of Southern California. Um, I am also director of the Southern California Earthquake Center, which is a very large multidisciplinary collaboration. Where did you grow up? My father was in the U.S. Army, so I was born in the country of Panama. Uh, Spent a few years there. My father did many tours back in the United States and uh, did time overseas. I ended up going to high school in Panama and came back to the States to go to college. Panama is an interesting place, um, obviously very tropical. Uh, I spent a lot of times out, a lot of time outdoors as a kid, um, and I think that helped to orient me towards the geological sciences. My father was an infantryman and he um, obviously spent a lot of time outdoors. Uh, He taught me how to read maps and I think knowing how to read the terrain like a soldier helps you look at the world like a geologist. I remember once he asked me, um, hmm, here's this very deep valley and in the valley is a very large river was the valley there first, or did the river cut the valley? And I remember being very intrigued by that question. And it got me thinking about some of the processes that operate on the surface of the earth. Well, my mother was uh, uh, primarily a stay-at-home mom uh, because we had I had six brothers and sisters, a family of seven children. Uh, we were constantly on the road and sort of a nomadic life um, and she was uh, she was certainly a major force in my life she was a very smart woman who was uh, thoughtful about the way the world worked and I think she uh, also contributed to my orientation towards science at a very early age I graduated from high school in Panama in 1965. My family was there, so I traveled back by military aircraft to uh, the United States. 
to Charleston, South Carolina, the military air transport terminal, to the train across country to Los Angeles, uh, went to Caltech as an undergraduate. I was quite young. I had uh, been in California in school before I went back to Panama. And at that time, California had quite an advanced curriculum. So when I ended up having to go to Central America, I had to skip a grade to sort of stay up with the, the material I was studying. And so that means I graduated from high school when I was 16. So at age 16, I left for the U.S. Uh, that was when I left home. I had never spent much time back at home since then. Um, and that was an uh, interesting experience. I, uh, the schooling in Panama was not up to the standards of most schools in the United States, so I was behind in terms of my studies at Caltech. It was a, quite a rigorous curriculum, um, and I didn't do especially well. Uh, I was not a good student. It was also the mid-1960s, and a lot was happening on the street, so I spent a lot of time in places like San Francisco. Uh, I ended up flunking out of Caltech uh, my junior year. But fortunately, the summer before that, I had started working at the Seismological Laboratory at Caltech. Um, I needed to get a job. My, my family couldn't pay for my school, so I had to work when I was in school. And I got a job with uh, you know, running seismometers around California, uh, which I enjoyed doing because it was sort of working out of doors. I, ended up working at the Seismological Laboratory as a technician, and one day Don Anderson called me up. He was the director of the Seismological Laboratory at that time. He said, Tom, um, rather than sorting resistors, wouldn't you rather be doing research? And I said, sure, I'd like to do some research. So uh, I started working with Don, again, for pay, uh, but it got me involved in research that ended up being my thesis research. So. At the time I flunked out of Caltech, I was getting going in research, and I think because of that, they, they let me back in. Uh, I was able to graduate. Um, my grades were so poor, I was in the lower quarter of my class, that I couldn't get into graduate school anywhere else, but they let me stay at Caltech as a graduate student. Because I had gotten sort of a jump on my thesis work as an undergraduate, I was able to finish my thesis in about uh, a little less than three years. And so I ended up graduating in, in uh, 1972. I got a job at Princeton University as assistant professor at that time. So I found myself in the summer of 1972 as a professor at an Ivy League university at age 23 after having flunked out of school just a, four years before that. So it was quite a turnaround. Uh, and uh, it's always surprised me. You know, I was ill-prepared to be a professor in the sense that I, again, had not been a very good student, so I didn't felt, feel like I, I knew very much. Um, but one of the ways you really learn the business is to teach. So it gave me my first exposure to teaching, both undergraduates and graduate students, and I, I really loved to teach, and that was, that was a, I sort of felt like I learned how to teach at Princeton. I was only there for three years. I couldn't 
wait to get back to the West Coast. So um, I got uh, job offers from Caltech and from uh, UC San Diego, uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I went to Scripps, so I decided to go back to Caltech, but uh, uh, got back on the West Coast. I was there by 1975. At that time, I was beginning, uh, well, actually, when I got to Princeton, I started sort of the most important phase of my scientific work. At that time, the, we didn't know much about the structure of the Earth. We uh, knew it was a layered planet, um, and I had spent my thesis work trying to improve our uh, sort of the numerical models we had of the Earth's interior, in particular sort of the layering of the Earth's interior. But we didn't know much about its lateral structure, about the, uh, for example, the variations inside the Earth associated with plate tectonics. Plate tectonics was a new theory. We knew that these large plates were moving over the surface of the Earth fairly rapidly, and uh, at places were being subducted down into the Earth's mantle, other places, magma was rising to fill in gaps left by the spreading plates. But we didn't have any uh, images of uh, what uh, structure underneath those plates uh, was and, and, and how that structure related to plate tectonics. So I started in on that right after I got my PhD. In fact, while I was doing my thesis work, I had some early indications of some of the variability inside the Earth that might be associated with plate tectonics. And uh, immediately uh, uh, started making some interesting discoveries. Um, discovered, for example, that the descending lithospheric slabs that go down in subduction zones uh, went very deep inside the Earth. At that time, the theory, the reigning theory was one where the these slabs went down and were reassimilated into the mantle at fairly shallow depth in the upper 700 kilometers of the mantle. But uh, I was able to get evidence that they actually penetrated deep into the mantle, uh, a thousand kilometers or more, and that got me involved in a very large controversy about whether uh, convection in the Earth's mantle is stratified with sort of an upper mantle system and a lower mantle system more or less separate from each other uh, versus what's called whole mantle convection where the circulation in the interior is very deep and the evidence I was able to collect uh, suggests it was very deep. A second aspect of my work at that time which uh, turned out to be important was the study of continents. We knew that continents played <clears throat> a role in plate tectonics but that role was unclear Continental crust is very light, and it's also easily deformed, and so in plate tectonics, uh, plates that have continents on them, uh, when the continents collide, those continents can't subduct, so you build large mountain ranges. Um, there's a lot of deformation that occurs in the continents, but at that time, it was thought that the continents were just riding kind of passively on the surface of the plates. They were, plates were moving along, and continents would be moved along with them, and that was a very nice explanation of continental drift. But I was, again, looking at the structure of the Earth's mantle, and one of the things that was very became very clear was that these continents had very deep structures associated with them. 
So the typical thickness of a lithospheric plate in the ocean is maybe 100 to 150 kilometers in thickness. Um, the evidence that uh, I and my students collected showed that the older part of the continents extended down to maybe three to four hundred kilometers, and therefore continents had these big keels that were moving along in plate tectonics and, and were therefore much more profound structures from a plate tectonic point of view than we had previously thought. And that raised all kinds of questions about how that structure could possibly persist uh, in a mantle that was so actively convecting. I thought long and hard about that. It took me very far afield from seismology into other types of studies, for example, looking in detail at the composition of mantle rocks and was able to show that these continental structures must be chemically distinct from the mantle around them in a certain very specific way and came up with a simple hypothesis that um, goes a long way towards uh, providing a sort of a basis for explaining these large-scale structures. I called it the isopicnic hypothesis. It's a, a notion that you have these thick continental structures, these cratonic keels, that go down several hundred kilometers. They are colder than the surrounding mantle, and as rocks get colder, they get denser. So if, if that was all that was happening, the continents were just cold parts of the earth, uh, they wouldn't last very long. Those rocks would be very dense and those rocks would break off and fall in deep into the mantle. So there had to be a compensation. And in this isopicnic hypothesis, that compensation occurred through the depletion of these rocks in uh, essentially a magmatic component, a, a type of rock we call basalt that had been taken out of these rocks that ended up making them intrinsically lighter than the surrounding mantle, so that there was this almost perfect compensation between the cold temperatures uh, that made them denser and the uh, chemical composition which made them lighter. And that theory has proved to be very successful. And how, how does what you found about, about these keels affect how the Earth behaves in the sense of what happens when things start moving around on the surface? Well, one of the interesting aspects of these keels is that they are very stable over long geologic periods for billions of years. So many of these keel structures were actually uh, created during uh, early phase of continental development uh, back in a geologic eon we call the Archean. Uh, that is earlier than 2.5 billion years ago. And uh, those structures are so stable they still exist and haven't changed much. That is a remarkable finding uh, in an Earth that is so dynamic. In fact, um, when it became clear that if these theories were correct, these structures had to exist for a very long time, a lot of people dismissed them out of hand by saying, you know, we know the Earth just doesn't work that way. And it wasn't until uh, the mid-80s when people started dating uh, inclusions in diamonds. So diamonds are not perfect and some, sometimes they have little minerals locked inside of them and those are little time capsules 
you can date those minerals and you find out that they have about the same age as the crust above them, a very ancient crust above them. So it appears that these continental keels are very important in terms of stabilizing the continents and allowing these crustal structures to persist for many billions of years. So, and that's of course very important, I think, to humans because, for example, a lot of our mineral resources come from these ancient continental regions. Uh, if those had been destroyed, uh, we would have less, probably have less in the way of mineral resources to work with on the surface of the planet. Um, I left Scripps in 1984 uh, to go to MIT. I was still a pretty young scientist at that time. And, uh, I remember people asking me, why would you want to leave Scripps? You know, one of the most beautiful spots in the world, uh, lots of good science being done there, very outstanding school. But I realized one day sitting on the beach that I had better get out of there because it was, life was a little bit too pleasant. So I decided to go back to MIT. I went to, there to Boston, first time I'd ever lived in Boston, a great city. I really enjoyed MIT, but, but uh, much to my surprise, after four years of being at MIT, only four years, I was asked to become the head of the department there, which uh, being a department head of one of these big MIT departments was a different type of job. Uh, I mean, I, I'm reasonably good at administration uh, and thought seriously about, about going into university administration um, and got a number of offers to become, you know, dean of this or provost of that, I ended up deciding not to go that route, and I'm very happy I did, um, because I've you know, always thought of myself as a scientist. I think changing careers, becoming an administrator, just wouldn't, wouldn't have been a good idea for me. Um, uh, I'm happy I didn't do it. Um, after I stepped down as department head, at MIT in 1998, I'd been in the department for 10 years. I decided I would, you know, you, when you're involved in university administration at that, at that level, it, you can um, kind of lose your, uh, the cutting edge of your ability to do science. So I thought it was important to um, revamp my scientific activities by essentially changing fields. So I went from being a seismologist who primarily studies the deep interior of the Earth to a seismologist that studies earthquakes. So I decided I would go back out to California. I put myself on the academic market, got some job offers out in California, and I took a job at the University of Southern California. The USC at that time had uh, a science technology center called the Southern California Earthquake Center. These science technology centers run for 11 years, and then they are, they are retired. Um, but we decided we would try and keep this center going. And um, it's been fascinating. I've been, I've been director of SCEC now for a little over 10 years. Uh, and it's been quite uh, a fascinating ride because SCEC now involves, I think, on the order of seven to 800 scientists working together on uh, literally hundreds of projects that are uh, in some sense coordinated and are working towards some common ends. And we've been able to 
do some remarkable things. For example, we uh, developed some very uh, interesting new types of earthquake forecasting methods. We have developed physics-based methods for predicting strong ground motions from earthquakes. And these are, I think, transforming the study of earthquakes into a real system science and are also providing new tools for helping society deal with the earthquake problem. Well, the biggest question in earthquake science is uh, can the earthquakes be predicted? And if so, how do you go about doing that? The answer to those questions is still not known. Uh, we have been working, and scientists have been working for more than 100 years trying to solve those problems. Earthquakes are very peculiar phenomena in that sense. They uh, essentially spontaneously arise out of these brittle deformation systems with, and, and, and there are events that happen with, with very little warning uh, that you're going to get a big event. And therefore, we have not yet figured out how to predict them with any accuracy in terms of when, where, and how big they will be. However, we have been learning something about that, and uh, one of the outcomes of earthquake science has been the development of what we call operational earthquake forecasting, which is providing people who need to know uh, about the how seismic hazards change with time. Mm -hmm. So we know that earthquakes over the long term will occur with a certain frequency, and that is determined essentially by the number of earthquakes needed to account for uh, the motion of the plates. So the plate boundaries are sticky and, and they don't uh, typically involve uh, slow deformation. They, they usually stresses accumulate on plate boundaries and are suddenly released in earthquakes. And so you have to have enough big earthquakes to be able to accommodate the majority of the plate motion. That allows us to estimate how frequently big earthquakes will occur. But of course the trick is to know well, when might that be. In California, for example, we believe the entire southern San Andreas Fault is ready for uh, big earthquakes. And that might come as one really big earthquake or as a series of smaller events. Uh, it's been deathly quiet in California from a seismic point of view over the last, certainly the last uh, 18 years or so. And uh, we don't think that will persist. Um, Operational quick forecasting, what we try to do is use seismic activity to uh, understand how that the probabilities of earthquakes will change in time. And it's a start on trying to, it's a start on what we call time-dependent seismic hazard analysis. So we're making progress. The progress has been, I would say, slow, but science, you know, often operates on the basis of breakthroughs, and I'm kind of scientist out there trying to see if we can learn something very new that would help us break through in this particular field. Um, since probably the 1970s, people have been half-joking about California having a massive earthquake and breaking off and disappearing into the ocean somewhere. Um, could that actually happen? Is that in the realm of possibility, this big one that everyone's waiting for? Yeah, I remember back in the 1960s, there was a great um, 
psychedelic poster that showed Los Angeles falling into the ocean. Um, so there is sort of this cataclysmic view of earthquakes. Earthquakes, in reality, of course, are not uh, quite that cataclysmic, uh, but we do know that a large earthquake in California would be an experience like we have never had. And, you know, there have been earthquakes uh, in California over the last uh, 50 years or so. There was in 1971, there was an earthquake in Southern California called the Silmar earthquake of magnitude 6.7, another about the same size in, in 1994, the Northridge earthquake. That latter earthquake was the largest natural disaster the U.S. had until Katrina, about $40 billion in direct economic damages. But it is a fairly small earthquake by seismological standards. We expect in California, you know, earthquakes of magnitude 7.5 to 7.9 or maybe even higher in the not distant future. And preparing for those kinds of events is a very difficult enterprise. One of the mechanisms we've developed for helping people prepare for these earthquakes is what are called the great shakeouts. These are uh, exercises that involve the public and uh, many public institutions. Uh, we had one of these exercises this last year which uh, on a single day uh, over nine million people participated in uh, earthquake preparedness exercises through the Western United States, Canada, and uh, some overseas. So we, one of the roles of a seismologist is to work with earthquake engineers and with public officials to help the public prepare for what are inevitably going to be large natural disasters. What advice would you give to a young person interested in a career in science? Gosh, I think uh, advice is to, you know, I don't think there's any career that's more satisfying than a human scientist, uh, or in many ways more enjoyable. So it's not easy to be a scientist because you've got to work pretty hard to get out there in front of things intellectually and be able to do something new. And I think a lot of young people feel, gosh, you know, all these scientists working on this for so many years, how am I possibly going to be able to go in and, and make a contribution? To them, I would say, you know, um, one of the fortunate things that you have is uh, lack of knowledge. Uh, science, uh, often great discoveries in science are made because people walk in and say, you know, it's clear that something's not understood. Uh, let's try and understand it. And problems that are intimidating to me as an older scientist uh, are not so intimidating to younger scientists because they frankly don't know how hard they are. And so I think that that uh, that perspective you have as a young person, um, sort of the freshness of being able to walk into a field and, and uh, look around and, and ask, you know, what really needs to be done, is is a, is a tremendous advantage. And that's why uh, so often great discoveries are made by by very young people. Uh, and, and, these discoveries, and I know this from my own experience, are made by people that don't know very much. Uh, it's not the, you know, the amount of accrued knowledge that you have. It's really your energy, enthusiasm, ability to kind of penetrate into a problem and, and kind of you know, crack it open. And uh, that process is not, I won't say it's easy, but it's, 
it's uh, some of those nuts are surprisingly easy to crack uh, if you uh, are in the right, say, the right situation to be able to, to work on the problem. So for young scientists that are moving into the field, I think the most important thing is to get into an environment where, where that type of science is really appreciated. And um, I think it's important for, for young scientists to um, recognize that they can make contributions at it really quickly in, in the field. You don't have to work on this for 20 years to, to, to be able to do something interesting. Um, I, I've had many graduate students, trained many PhDs, and it's been one of the really, uh, probably the most important aspect of my career has been my interaction with my student colleagues. And uh, I can tell you that, at least in my field, um, there are are just many outstanding problems that are available to uh, brand new scientists uh, where you can really make an impact. So I would say go for it. Since 1863, the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.